Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 398, First Battle of El Alamein. Last time, we saw the BBC's enthusiastic coverage of the El Alamein line cause Rommel to delay his attack on the station by 24 hours. And Auchinleck certainly used that extra time to rush forward additional units. But as with every battle, the main focus was, where would Rommel strike? Rommel himself knew, of course, but what he did not know of what awaited him out there in the desert would determine if he ever made it to Alexandria. Either way, July 1st, the day of battle, came. But however it happened, the attackers, normally a smooth-running outfit, made several amateur mistakes that day that sapped their punching power and how quickly that punch could be delivered. Rommel knew his men were tired, certainly too tired to give their best, yet he was hoping he would not need his men's best. For the Desert Fox did not want to fight here at El Alamein. Instead, he was hoping to force the enemy to give up on their dug-in positions and head east, which would leave his men with the relatively less stressful task of chasing, not fighting. But would it work? On this day of battle, Rommel had 55 German medium and 30 Italian tanks, respectable enough if grouped. But what really limited Rommel was his lack of motorized infantry, what with the 90th Light being down to 1,000 men and Africa Corps with only 500 men. Fortunately, the Italian divisions meant some 5,000 men were available to Rommel. They just weren't German or German-trained. But the attacker's greatest strength was his artillery having some 330 guns, all types, but which included 29 88mm guns. And the Italians had another 200 guns, all types. Would they be enough to make a difference? All involved? We're about to find out. Back to Rommel's less-than-propitious start. The Allied Desert Air Force, now that it controlled the skies again, made Africa Corps' life a living hell in the form of wrecked panzers and trucks. In fact, such was the harassment by the Allied air arm that Africa Corps tanks, those that were to travel just below the 90th Light Division and then turn south to take on Gott's tanks, they were three and a half hours late for their jump-off point. Why? The petrol trucks that they needed had to play hide-and-seek with the enemy planes overhead. So by the time these panzers took off, The sun was in their eyes and on the shoulders of the British or Commonwealth troops firing at them. Again, not a great start for Africa Corps. As for the 90th Light Division, it did start on time early that morning. But the person or persons guiding them should have been shot. The 90th Light was supposed to have swung just south of El Alamein Station's perimeter. Instead, The panzers and motorized infantry went too far north and hit the western side of the station's defensive perimeter, which allowed the guns of the 3rd South African Brigade to start up and keep going, to the point that the panzers were pinned down. Their only option at this point was to stand and deliver as accurate shots as possible. Only at noon, when a dust storm rose up, were the panzers free to move. Either way, they were now way behind schedule. 
This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, just below Africa Corps, which was made up of the 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions, other Panzer units were making for the Deir el Abiyad Depression, where German reconnaissance had said Indian units were. To the relief of the German soldiers and to General Walther Nehring, who was in command, they found the area empty. So they moved on, making their way east to the next depression, Deir el Sheen. But this is where the various defensive positions come to an advantage versus a defensive line. As the Panzers made their way ever closer to Deir el Sheen, guns from the 1st South African Brigade Column, stationed just above Ruisat Ridge, and the Indian gunners actually closer to Deir el Sheen depression, opened up, promising an increase in intensity should the Panzers try to come any further east. Also, within the Depression itself was the 2nd Battalion, 5th Essex Regiment. Alas, as we will see, they had not been given any anti-tank weapons and would pay a terrible price. As General Nehring was to have his units turn south once they were in between the Deir el-Sheen Depression and the Ruisat Ridge, he knew he could not just leave enemy units there behind him, as well as the nearby artillery. No, all would have to be taken out before turning south to Gott's supposed tanks down there. They would just have to wait. During all this, the first half of July 1st, Rommel was in a good mood. Too good a mood, it seems. His enthusiasm was infecting his decision-making skills. When he found out that the 90th light had gone too far north, He simply smiled and told them to get back on course and to continue pushing east. It would take time for him to learn of their lack of progress. Next, when Nearing reported being stuck at Deir el-Sheen, Rommel said, Oh well, fight your way through and move on to the south. It would take time for him to learn of their lack of progress. In fact, Rommel was so confident, or rather eager, that he told the Italian infantry divisions to get ready to move out. They would have the honor of chasing the British-led enemy forces all the way back to Alexandria. Such 
was his point of view. In fact, Rommel had heard that some of his men had sent a message to the ladies of Alexandria saying they hoped to be well received that very evening. Rommel liked that kind of swagger. By this time, Rommel was figuring out things were not going according to plan. So when he got that unfortunate message from the 90th Light, Rommel made his way towards that division. Around noon, when the dust storm had arose, the 90th Light used that to creep forward, being relatively safe from stray shells. The 90th had gone about four miles in the dust. Rommel has not quite caught up to them when a breeze came along and chased away the dust. And just like that, the 90th Light, in its entirety, was within sight and range of not just the 3rd Indian Brigade within the Alamein perimeter, but within range of all three Indian Brigades, along with the guns of the 1st Armored Division. Here's a description of the clash from the diary of the 90th Light Division. A panic breaks out in the division. This is around 3.30 p.m. local time, which is stopped by the energetic action of the divisional commander and chief of staff. Supply columns and even parts of the fighting units rush back under ever-increasing enemy artillery fire. The commanders of the battle groups, however, succeed in keeping the majority of their units facing the enemy and bring back the troops which have taken to flight. It is, however, impossible to resume the advance. Soon, Rommel showed up in his armored car and tried to restore the 90th light enough for it to get going. But the shells landing around them from four different gun emplacements was too much, even for Rommel. Soon, he and his staff were lying with their backs on the ground, the safest way to be with all those Allied shells flying overhead. Back to General Nearing's attack on Deir el Sheen, he too had to deal with a sandstorm, but Nearing ordered his men forward through the storm, and this way they crept ever closer to their target, the depression itself. Soon the German sappers were at the perimeter of the 18th Indian Brigade's holdout there and started to clear a path. Eventually, the Indians caught on and opened fire. There was nothing for it but for the Germans to press forward. And though the 18th Indian Brigade had not fought the Germans before, Indeed, this was their first battle. These men kept the attackers back for the rest of the day. It seems that their training, prowess, and what the 8th Army had learned so far about desert fighting helped them overcome the ferocity of the Germans. And yet, what the Indian troops had not learned was the why or how of altering their dispositions when darkness came. As it was, the Germans tried again that night and got inside the perimeter. Before too long, the men of the 18th Indian Brigade were retreating east. But they had held up the tip of Rommel's spear for the day. And even though all of this had come about due to the retreat from Ghazala, this was not the last battle of the Ghazala line, but rather it was the first battle of El Alamein. Though July 1st had not gone well for the attackers, Rommel was getting ready for the next day to try again. The 90th Light was ordered to move out at 4 a.m. on July 2nd. They were to keep to their original mission, 
to get past El Alamein Station and then turn north to cut off the coast road. No massive retreats this time for the defenders. But the guns of the South African brigades stopped the panzers again. To have continued moving forward was to have wiped out all of the panzers. All that pain with nothing to show for it. By 10 a.m., Rommel could read the writing on the wall. To the north, he did not have enough men to help with the push, nor enough men to help with the push in the south. There was only one thing for it. Rommel would combine some of his forces and attack again, this time with greater strength. Thus was Nering ordered to bring his men and tanks a bit further north and support the 90th Light and Africa Corps columns as they were to clear the South African guns and then split up. Meanwhile, the Italians would stay to the south and keep pushing, making sure the enemy did not also transfer troops to the north. Specifically, they were to head from their position at Deir el Shein and make for Kapanga. As General Nearing needed time to move his troops and tanks into a new position, there was a lull in the fighting that day. C&C Auchinleck believed that now was his chance to take the initiative, no more reacting. So he had the last of the 50th Division in the area move forward to help the three Indian brigades. The C&C felt that they would be hit again with a reinforced attack. Meanwhile, should something unfortunate happen in the south, Rommel was known for his surprises. Auchinleck also had the 1st Armored Division transfer to Gott's command in the south. In this, Auchinleck and Gott were both hoping that the 1st Armored's 150 tanks, but only two squadrons of them were Grant's, would be enough. In essence, Auchinleck wanted Nori to hold on in the north, while Gott swung wide with the 1st Armored and the New Zealanders and got into Rommel's rear, causing as much havoc as possible. These moves by Rommel and Auchinleck determined the next 48 hours of fighting. Rommel trying to push forward in the north, with his 90th light being checked by the South Africans and the 50th Division columns, while the 1st Armored Division checked the Africa Corps near Ruisat Ridge in the center, but it was the New Zealanders actually scoring a win by engaging with and then destroying the guns of the Ariete Division. The Italian Division was also only left with four tanks. Even better, the New Zealanders pushed further west and then north, reaching the El Mir Depression, about 7 miles or 11 kilometers due west of Ruisat Ridge, so fairly in the middle of the combat area. Unfortunately, even though the first part of Auchinleck's plan was working fine, Gott did not have any reserves, so there were no fresh forces to take over from the New Zealanders and to keep pushing north, which of course would have cut the supply lines of Rommel and the Italians. To be held up for two days was something new for Rommel. By the end of July 3rd, he was ready to admit, well, not defeat, but a necessary discontinuation of hostilities, certainly large-scale fighting, until more units could be brought up to the front. A message went out from Rommel to OKW, and when Kesselring saw his copy, he probably smiled to himself. The message read, 
With the present fighting strength and supply situation, an attack on large scale is not possible for the time being. It is hardly possible to supply the army by night, as the roads are almost completely denied by enemy air activity. Large-scale operations might be off the table for the moment, but that did not mean Rommel would sit and wait. No, in fact, he had already picked out his first victim. Ordering the Italians, who were mostly along the imaginary defensive line, to dig in, Rommel also ordered them to put up wire and to put down mines. Their positions were to be made impenetrable, to allow the panzers more freedom to move and attack. When Ultra later told Auchinleck of this message, he knew the men had done well that day. The message that he sent out that night of July 3rd was the opposite of Rommel's. It read, From C&C to all ranks, 8th Army. Well done, everyone. A very good day. Stick to it. The prey that Rommel had picked out would be the New Zealanders, who were sticking out more than most of the units because of the first part of Auchinleck's counter-attack, which made them get atable. Rommel quickly wrote a message directly to Kesselring. The intention is first of all to hold the front and regroup in such a manner that 2nd New Zealand Division can be encircled and destroyed. It is urgently requested that 88mm AA batteries be sent. The next few weeks would see the size of each combat group grow as their respective governments continued to send them reinforcements, which the respective commander would simply throw into the cauldron that had become the first battle of El Alamein. Postscript. A few observations. Here's a short description of one battle during that day's fighting. Deer El Sheen was a small depression of solid rock covered by 18 inches of sand, and the two fifth Essex were dumped there with only their rifle companies. No anti-tank guns, no carriers, and certainly no armor with no explosives to shift rock. Slit trenches could only be scraped into 18 inches of sand and afforded no cover from view or protection from shot or shell. At 7 a.m. on 1 July 1942, the German 15th Panzer arrived and started to shell the battalion and launch an all-out attack. Despite being totally outnumbered, this was repulsed, with fighting continuing until early afternoon, when a sandstorm blew up. Under cover of this, 15th Panzer threw all their tanks against the battalion's pitiful anti-tank defenses, and of course, broke through. Fighting still continued area to area until early evening, when resistance inevitably ceased, with two 5th Essex completely annihilated, all dead, wounded, or captured. The man who wrote this was Company Quartermaster Sergeant W. H. Howe, Essex Regiment, who was taken prisoner on that July 1st. William Harry Bill Howe, a native of Great Maplesteed, Essex, was born on August 24, 1907. A gardener by profession, he enlisted in the 5th Battalion Essex Regiment Territorials in October 1925. Mobilized in September 1939, the battalion was embarked for the Middle East in December 1940 and served in Palestine and Iraq in 1941 and early 1942. 
Following his capture at Deir el Shane on July 1, 1942, Hal was held in Fermo in Italy prior to being transferred to Stalag 4B at Molberg on the Elbe in September 1943. He was finally liberated in April 1945. On a lighter note, when Auchinleck's chief of staff, Dorman Smith, heard that the Germans had radioed the ladies in Alexandria to be ready for them, Dorman Smith decided to use that information to try to cheer up his CNC. By July 3rd, Auchinleck was stable, but tense, which is when his chief of staff walked in and goes, This is impossible, sir. Auchinleck rounded on the man. He thought he meant the battle plans. I always thought you believed we could pull this thing off. To which Dorman Smith explained, Oh, no, sir. Not the fighting to preserve Egypt and the entire Middle East. No, 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 no. To fight to preserve the honor of the professional women in Egypt. That is far too late, sir. They don't have any honor. Auchinleck did not laugh. He did not smile, but the mood in the room lifted a bit. And last time we covered America's response to the capture of Tobruk, with General Marshall sending over sorely needed tanks and guns, and FDR agreeing to land in North Africa versus a cross-channel invasion. But London had its own idea of payback for Tobruk, namely the bombing of Bremen. Bomber Commander Air Marshal Arthur Harris, using the German Blitz on Britain, came up with the idea that collateral damage was not an unfortunate side effect of war, but rather should be carried out on purpose to weaken the enemy's morale. So, during the night of June 25th, 1,000 bombers were sent over. When the planes returned, not that all did, some 600 German houses were destroyed. The price for this was 49 bombers not making the trip back home. And lastly, Churchill at this point is complaining about Auchinleck all anew to his chief of imperial general staff, which is never a good sign for long-term employment. <laughs> 